HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 in the Good Beer Seal. Today it's Tuesday, November 17th, 2015. It's a nice fall day in, in New York City. we got Stephen Valand from Brooklyn Brew Shop. Hey, All right. John Hall from uh, author and all about beer editor. Hello. And Jeff Cialetti, who's a, also an editor, who's written a great book. It's called... The year of drinking adventurously, which I always want to say the year of drinking dangerously. But uh, so we got we got a, we got a packed show. We're going to cover quite a few topics tonight. Another great uh, episode of Beer Sessions Radio. We're brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, suppliers of world class ales and lagers. Thanks to HeritageRadioNetwork.org for being out there. You can join a member, become a member, and check it out. And again, live tweets. Maggie's there at beer underscore sessions. So here we are. We had a few beers out at the bar at Roberta's. I'm drinking a Hill Farmstead. I don't know what are you guys drinking, John? What are you drinking? Pilsner from Avery, the Joe's Pills. And uh, Jeff, what did you I get? Got the same thing. I got same the thing. Pils. And Stephen, and I got the Hill Farmstead. So it's Hill Farmstead versus Avery. But we're not going to do steal that beer. That other great podcast that john and justin are part of which got written up in broken magazine which is really cool if you guys want to know what's going on uh, there's a lot of good beer podcasts out there and uh it's it's an exciting time in the radio in new york city so the real reason on the show today is that uh, jeff who we know you as editor of uh, beverage world which yeah. is like an industry magazine so yeah. you know everything you know everything from energy drinks to the latest you know winches yeah. for delivery trucks and yeah, higher pressure. Alcohol, non-alcohol <laughs> to yeah, distribution technology, uh, handheld software, and uh, weird ingredients. So whether you're talking about whether it's craft or micro, whatever industry you're in, the world of beverage is huge. And uh, I know John, you also cover it in all about beer. You've really got you've been around the world and country and. In, in amazing ways the last few years. Yeah, it's been it's been great. I mean, there's so much happening globally right now in beer, and we're just trying to cover as much of it as we can. So I've been really fortunate to travel the country, travel the world, and drink with a lot of great local brewers and find out what's happening trend-wise and uh, getting into some trouble along the way. So it's and been, you also been brought us some, some beers, too. I you? did. I brought uh, one beer from California, from, uh, from Los Angeles, and another from... 
Manhattan, Kansas, uh, the Tallgrass Brewery out there. So uh, some fun beers. And Justin, your producer, brought down some uh, some session, some super session number two from Lawson's up in Vermont. So I think we'll probably Love that. get into that. Let's just yeah, start with that one. Let's pop yeah, that. Yeah, let's do that. And then talking about traveling, I think, I think it shows the theme because of Jeff's book. It's the year of drinking adventurously. He really covers like kind of the the, the world of, of different drinks, but but it seems like everyone in the room today is traveling as part of their job. And and Stephen, you too. So as as like the co owner of Brooklyn Brew Shop, you guys are basically making beer kits and recipes and distributing them around the world. What are some recent trips you've had to take for your business? Uh, yeah, um, we've been we've gone to Europe a few times uh, lately. Uh, went to Germany most recently. Went to but don't you have uh, the, you have like things like I mean let's get to nuts and bolts supplier issues and oh yeah things I mean like that did you, you have to fly off somewhere recently oh yeah I mean we went to we've gone to Chicago to visit like warehouses in the past you know for you know one day visits for the past two for the past two weeks but uh, when, yeah when you talk about the beverage world and like everything that goes into a beer and, and the whole everything that surrounds just what is inside of a glass the world is uh it's, let's, it's let's, let's, let's we're trying to place this show. everybody in this room except for me has far-flung interests and gets to deal with different parts of the beverage industry so steven okay so you went to a supplier and what what do they supply you with like what do you guys do you have like beer kits <laughs> Yes, we make kits. We teach people how to be, uh, make beer, um, but we are, you know, our kits are all grain, so we don't use extracts. So we actually have to visit maltsters. Uh, we have to figure out how to get all that into a pouch, and then get that pouch along with, you know, a glass jug and a whole bunch of like thirteen little pieces into a box, and then how to get that into another box, and then into store shelves, and then into people's homes. So it's a it's a pretty huge uh, and long supply chain uh, management. You're, so you're like that's one part of the beverage world. I'm just playing on Jeff because when you you see Jeff, you're, I, I love your book and you're a great author. But you're like this beverage world magazine. It's when you read that you realize this is really what beverage is about. So the guys that are selling beer are also selling energy drinks and yeah, it's it's all about it's 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 logistics. It's not the sexy part of the industry. I mean, we all want to hear about new drinks and we all want to hear about. Um, flavor and things like that, but what it comes down to, it's space on a truck, how much everything weighs, and how much more it's going to cost people to get it from A to B because it's going to drive up fuel prices because it weighs this much money, and what sort of tools and technologies are available to keep that as cheap as possible. And so it's not the most exciting part of the industry, but it is part of what people do, and people just assume that. Uh, a lot of times beverages just magically appear in the store and then they buy them but there's a really a lot of complicated stuff that happens from when the beverage is sourced all the way till it gets to the consumer's hand so so i'd say so between you and john being editors of these kind of national magazines it's it's enabled you to travel and enabled you to become exposed to so many things which is part of what's in your book and what we'll talk about today and before john so for you traveling Sorry. as editor of all about beer magazine what are some of the most interesting things you've encountered? I know you had your great your your your, your beer cookbook, which I love. Thank you, American Craft Beer Cookbook, right? Thank you. Did yes. I get it right? You this did. <laughs> you did. Thank you. I never did. And uh, you you got to go to all the festivals. What, what are what are some of the highlights of, of of your time as editor of a national magazine? You know, I, it it honestly has just been being in local pubs 
or local breweries with people who are there all the time, sort of being the outsider, uh, being welcomed in. And you get to see, and I've been able to experience just how strong a community, how strong a fraternity uh, the, the, the beer world really is, and that people are very welcoming. And it's great to see firsthand uh, the passion that goes into uh, the, the beers that the brewers are making, but then also the passion that the consumers have for the beers that they're drinking and for the beers that those brewers are making. So for me, some of the, the highlights have not been, you know, uh, being on a plane and being in London or Sweden. Like, it's been great, like, going to those places. But then it's really been getting into the nitty-gritty, like, staying out, closing bars, hanging out with people, just really feeling like a part of the community and being able to experience, uh, I think, what the true spirit of beer uh, is these days. And that's social togetherness uh, brought together by a shared love of of great flavor and, and great talent and passion. That's great. And then so so I guess with uh, our beer kit guy over here, Stephen, and our, our beverage world editor, let's say I have a new small brewery and I wanted to buy a truck. Do I, how do I figure out what truck to buy? I mean, these are things you have. This is what happens in beverage world, right? There's like reviews of... Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. Though. I get the magazine. It's, 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 you know, there, first of all, there are plenty of trade shows uh, to go to where you actually get to drive... Um, drive the trucks and test them out. And Beverage World itself does an annual conference called BevOps, which uh, you do, like a lot of the truck suppliers will bring trucks for people to actually test out. So there's part that's part of it. But the other part of it is it's really um, all the major truck manufacturers, be it international or, or Freightliner or whatever, they all do specifically uh, tailored trucks for the beverage market, or at least, you know, they... Um, they court the beverage market and, and, and give them trucks that, that function for that. So most of the time um, they have people on their sales teams who are directly selling to the beverage sector, be- directly to beverage distributors. So th- they pretty much know what beverage distributors want and they know uh, how to answer whatever questions they want. So that's that's really what it comes down to. And, and you know, it's it's not any, not any really – more different than going out and buying your own car. It's like, you know, beverage people have specific needs just like a person has specific needs on their cars and and they go out and get it. But yeah, that is a major expense in any beverage operation is the trucks because not only is it buying the equipment, it's the maintenance and it's the fuel. The fuel is the biggest part of it because you're constantly paying for that I've, every I've day. I've seen that in certain deliveries that get they'll add a fuel charge, which Oh yeah, especially you if, 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 if you remember a few years back when when you know, fuel was over, you know, just like regular gasoline was over $4 a gallon. Um, that was those that was nuts. And so everybody was putting a surcharge on there. And I think they've kind of scaled it back now that prices have come down a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, it is because it gets so much that you can't be a profitable business unless you start charging people more. Well, one thing I'm trying to build up is, is this the credit that you have, Jeff? Because you've honestly been involved in the industry for a number of years as an editor on, on, on that side, which really covers everything. But how, how did you end up uh, writing this book? You know, the the year of drinking adventurously, fifty two ways to get out of your comfort zone. You know, wh- what's the format of the book? Because I really liked it. I've, I've I've read some great chapters. Well, well, the format, the, the simple format is I, I wanted to structure it as a year, um, so I did it in 
52 individual chapters. Each one is a different week. Each one represents a different kind of drink, and that covers beer, spirits, uh, cider, mead, uh, sake, uh, you know, some wines, and that sort of thing. So, uh, so basically the idea is try something new every week, once a week for a year. And I figured once a week is good because it doesn't encourage people to binge. You know, my, when I was first kind of kicking around the idea, do I want to do it 365 days like a new drink every day and i'm like well i don't want to encourage people to just always be drinking so once a week is good right, that's our job that's yeah. your job yeah it's, and and that, that's the other thing like you mentioned earlier like i keep wanting to call the book the year of drinking dangerously i the, the title i lifted it from you know it's a riff on the year of living dangerously that's where i got the idea for the title so dangerously was it and for about two seconds i was thinking do i want to call it the year of drinking dangerously and i'm like no because that sort of has connotations of, oh, people are getting stupid drunk. And, that's why yeah, I bought the book. those trucks for a test drive. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Uh, so I wanted it to be more about adventure. I don't want to encourage irresponsible drinking. John always gets all the risks. That's why we're talking about <laughs> test drive and trucks and everything. And, you know, you got the, you know, Mel Gibson. Just set them up, I'll in, knock them down. It's, you know. Mel Gibson was in the year of drinking, uh, year of living adventurously, and he was Mad Max, and there was a lot of driving in that. So there's the connection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go through the books. And then, Steve, and so for you, do you have any trucks in your business? Uh, we're talking about just an You're F- really stuck on the truck just thing, an, aren't you? Just, <laughs> an, just an F-150 that I've, I've spent way too much time in today. Um, but, yeah, I think most small business people try to avoid at all costs having a truck. Uh, it's kind of the thing that uh, you'd, you'd rather not have, and you'd rather focus on making beer. What's the, if, if you're a beverage geek, you got to get Beverage World magazine <laughs> because it got trucks. They've got all the latest rollouts of things and everything. Oh, I love cool it. I, I subscribe. Yeah, I mean, it's like I, that's why I'm not in that side of the business. I, I couldn't figure out what to do with the truck centerfolds. Are it's great. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. but let's talk about the beer we have. So this is this is cool. We got a Lawson's beer from Vermont. Everybody loves Lawson. What is this? It's like hoppy water. What is it? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Supercession said, number two. Now that's what hoppy Justin water. said. Oh, when Justin he said it off. that. Uh, and I feel that I feel bad that we're drinking Justin's beer right now, but it's a uh, four point eight percent and um they said to keep it cold and enjoy it fresh which i think is exactly what we're doing yeah it tastes super grassy a little bit of a wildflowers just like in vermont yeah they're saying late edition of amarillo uh in the kettle and in dry hopping so we're getting a lot of we love lawson's and we hope that maybe they'll be in new york city one day so in your book jeff okay we we uh we jo- we're joking, but we're really serious. There are some great chapters that popped out to me. First, first the the beer coverage you did. Um, you picked uh, a, a few th- themes for chapters. You have a sour beer chapter, and then you go to goose, and then you go to trappist. Mm-hmm. So why why did you pick those three as some of your key beer chapters? Because in this book, you're covering everything from piscos and whiskeys and barrel aging. Well, I wanted to, you know, for, for beer specifically, and again, it's more you know getting people out of their own comfort zones and what they they typically drink you know this could be for instance a whiskey drinker who wants to maybe try beer a little bit or somebody who does with that you get in a situation where you have people who say and i hear this a lot oh i just don't like beer and i'm like well that's a very broad statement you know because you're basing this on something you drank large quantities of in college and hated the taste of uh so i wanted to pick some styles that are pretty far removed from that classical concept of what beer is. So I'm like, you know what? 
I and I know and I've known people who who don't really drink that much beer and they try a sour and they're like, wow, I've never had anything like this. Like something like Duchesse de Bourgogne, for instance, something like that. And they're like, wow, this is I can't believe beer tastes like this. And in my own experience, when I first got into beer, probably twelve or thirteen years ago, um, my entry point was really through Belgian beers, and uh, I really started to get into the Trappist stuff. And that was sort of my own revelation was, wow, I didn't realize beer could taste like this. So there was sort of a little personal thing in there because I think like when people try something like a Trappist, they're like, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, and and I did some things on Barrel Age. I did one on coffee um, because, you know, there's coffee beers. I mean, if you happen to like coffee, you're going to love coffee beer because that's what it tastes like. And, um, you know, I did like Berliner Weiss because it's sort of a, it's sort of a milder sour that, that people could really get into. It's very, very refreshing. And, um, and it's this classic style that almost died, uh, but was really resurrected by American. One thing I like when you're going back to the Belgian, I think that's, that's a great starting point. And, uh, some people are talking about American craft beer that let's come back. We're taking a break and be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio. Right. Some chill music this week from Keto. We'll be right back on Beer Sessions Radio. I'm Alice Marcus Creek. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we're the ladies of We, we Dig, Dig Plants. Plants. And today we're asking you to dig deep into your pockets and help us grow this radio station and our podcast and everything that you know and love about us. How do you do it? You go to the heritageradionetwork.org website. You will see a beating heart. It's on every page. And you can give a dollar. You can give $5. You can give whatever. $500. $500. $5,000. Just click on the heart, donate, and help support the radio that you love. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. That's right. Go on our network, heritageradionetwork.org. Click on the heart and donate like $5,000. You can come and sit on the show with us anytime you want. So that's one of the perks is you can come sit in the studio. And uh, also, if you happen to be out at Roberta's anytime, you can come and say hi and check us out Friday, Tuesdays at 5. Or I think many other many other shows let you in the studio if you donate $5,000. So. For $10,000, can they sit on your lap? Well, sure, man. Okay. There it is. John, your, what else do you want to know about? Because, you know, John, we've been friends a long time, and yes. uh, you were talking about uh, you know different themes from, from Jeff's book. But, you know, as editor of a national beer magazine, All About Beer, how do you pick your stories? Because there's so many themes out there. Oh, just I close my eyes and throw darts at a wall. <laughs> no, it, you know... It, I think it's it's a it's really difficult and it's getting harder these days because there is so much happening in the beer world. So I think one of the the approaches that we have at the magazine and and the magazine's been around for thirty six years now, and so we've sort of uh, we've taken the training wheels off a long time ago, and we really are very conscious of our identity and and what we want to be. But we've really sort of gotten into uh, these aha stories or what's known as like an NPR driveway moment. And so I want to have a story that's compelling enough for people to read all the way through to the end. And when they're done, or at least some part in the story, go, aha, 
like they, they've learned something and they are now inspired by it. And so I really work with the writers, uh, work with my staff and work with everybody else involved in the magazine to really make sure that every issue uh, is, is chock full of that. And I think that that's really important. And the whole NPR driveway thing is basically a story so good that if you're driving home, you get to your driveway, you don't turn off the car right away. You just sit and listen until the story is over because it's that engaging. And then you turn off your car and then, then you go from there. But that's what I want out of the magazine. And then the, there's like it's some kind of national bloggers conference. You, you, you and All About Beer won a couple of awards recently, didn't you? Yeah, so the... The National Guild of North American Beer Writers, and I'm butchering that name, but it's uh, it's basically it's the the guild of people who write about beer. Uh, yeah, we picked up four awards this year, including a first place beer and food writing award for Mr. Jeff Cialetti right here, uh, which makes it three years in a row that All About Beer has won the best beer and food coverage. What was uh, that first article? For that. What was that article, Jeff? It was uh, the title was called was Feeding Frenzy, and it was about. Uh, beers that are inspired by food, you know, for instance, like a pizza beer and some, and then, you know, Carton did the one on uh, the panzanella salad and that sort of thing. Like anything that has a, a, a sort of food inspiration, but the, the, the hook was how do you avoid something like that or how do you prevent something like that from descending into gimmick? Like how do you make a really good beer that's inspired by but doesn't necessarily have to taste exactly like something but uh, make an actual good beer that's not just a novelty that somebody's going to try Do you remember, once. besides the, the Carton Panzanella, I actually had an argument with a chef once. I said, dude, it's a Panzanella beer. It's like garden salad and a beer. And he's like, but Panzanella has bread, man. It has bread. And I was like, well, that's the beer part, right? Yeah, right. He, picked, he, picked the malt. he picked yeah. a very bready malt for that. Cause he, yeah, and I love that beer. But was there, is there another beer from that article that you'd recommend? Uh, there was the other one. Uh, what was the one that uh, uh, Funky Buddha did? I, I'm trying to remember what it was. They did a... Oh, God. You know, Steve? Is it a blueberry? Um, no, it wasn't really that one. I mean, I know I talked about some that. of the stuff that Shorts just, did, like the Key Lime Key beer. Lime Pie and the Bloody Mary beer Bloody and beer a bunch and... of those others as well. Yeah, I, I think that there is such a great cross-section between beer and food these days that it's only natural for brewers to really be inspired when they're brewing by food. And the natural progression, as Jeff pointed out in the story, uh, is that now brewers are trying to mimic foods as well. And I think... Sometimes it really works. Shorts out of Michigan does a fantastic job of that. Their Bloody Mary beer, uh, their Key Lime Pie beer. There's something else that we had earlier this year that was really uh, quite Oh, they excellent. had the gin and tonic the beer. The gin and tonic beer, which was, like, yeah, which was phenomenal. Uh, that one's silver uh, at GABF at the Great American Beer Festival this year. Uh, and I think the experimental category. So there's a lot of really cool uh, things that are the cross-section of beer and food right now. Stephen, have you made any of your any of your beer kits? Have you made any like food beer crossovers? I know you made like a lobster beer once. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've made a lobster beer. Actually, the beer I think I'll be pouring next is a coffee and an imperial coffee and donut stout. So it's like a deconstructed donut and. So coffee what is it when, when people make a beer with like donuts or something? They actually put the donuts in, in some, the brew. Some people put donuts in there. I mean, a lot of that's going to ferment out, so you're not going to really get the donut character. Uh, so we don't add donuts to ours, but uh, Rogue does uh, the Voodoo Donut Stout. What about meat, like putting in bacon or lamb? I heard someone put lamb into uh, a beer. I mean, Have Adams you come across those? Sam Adams did beer. the Beefheart beer about five, six years ago with uh, with David Burke, with the chef. That that was something that they did. And we actually did a, um, a uh, based on a Pisca out of Black uh, Mountain, North Carolina, does a bacon snout where they use Benton's uh, bacon. And uh, they basically 
dry bake in it. So instead of dry hopping, they actually add bacon. And we were really skeptical of going down there, but it was really fantastic. Um, it's a great stout. Well, see, as, as a brewer, and, uh, what's the process creamy. that happens? If I'm putting some dried meat in. Yeah, so with bacon, uh, you want to get the you know the leanest bacon you can. You want to cut off as much fat as possible, and um, you know just get out as much fat as you can, uh, and then you add it to your secondary fermenter, um, and you just let it sit there for a few days, uh, and then you can. Um, and does does the meat or the protein does it actually add to the fermentation? Uh, no, it doesn't add anything. If anything, people worry about it. Uh, it does make like head retention, so you're going to have a few. You know, you're going to have fewer bubbles, but if you cut away as much fat as you can uh you can actually and if you use really good i mean if you're using benton's bacon the same stuff that you're going to be getting at mamafuku uh if when they use bacon i mean it's really good quality good quality bacon you'll be surprised um it tastes kind of like a roush beer but so that's cool so so that's one great article that you guys wrote yeah it won an award yeah and we picked up a couple of others uh, uh this year uh as well which was which was really you know, quite nice, and it's great to be you know recognized for that. On the bacon thing, one of the best bacon beers that I ever had, though, didn't actually put bacon into the beer, uh, but they put the malt into a smoker with bacon, and so it was bacon smoked malt, uh, black patent malt that went into the beer, and it was phenomenal. You got good. all of the smoky bacon flavor off of it, but you still had good head retention. You didn't have any of that sort of oily sheen that no matter what. How much fat you cut from a ba- uh, from the bacon, you're still going to get a little bit of that. It's been my experience. Yeah, so- you can honestly do plenty with smoked malt. Uh, people asked us for years, like how you. Uh, for some reason, people are obsessed with wanting to put bacon in beers, and we got that question for years. And our answer would always be, "Don't." Uh, right. You can, but then we saw it done. We were actually quite shocked, and we tried it ourselves, and uh, it worked. But smoked malt, especially one that you smoke. While cooking bacon, which we've done too, and that's great. And then going back to John as, yeah. as, as an editor, all about beer. I mean, I, I tell us about Jeff as a writer because I, I, I knew him as an editor, as as you know, in the in the field of beer and oh beverages. Boy. But I mean, I'm really impressed with. I've been waiting five years for this question. <laughs> with what he wrote in the year of drinking adventurously, so. Go ahead, rip them apart. Come no, I, there's actually nothing to rip apart. I can't think of anybody else that I've come across in the beverage space right now who's more qualified to do a book like this than Jeff. Um, he is I, – I think you know if it was drinking dangerously, uh, that also personifies Jeff. But he is a very actually <laughs> nice. adventurous drinker. He really is an adventurous drinker and, I, and I've seen it firsthand. We've traveled uh, quite extensively together and – Jeff is the guy who is scanning the dusty bottles on a bar shelf, who is carefully going through a cocktail menu, who is rattling off information about uh, far-flung spirits and drinking traditions and all sorts of uh, really interesting facts. He's the guy that you want to be drinking with. Okay, so let's get him on Trappist. Yeah. Let's put him. Stay on the subject. And, and the one chapter on Trappist is great. You, you hint at you. Some you like something about. Beer that's related to churches, and I know you once made a movie about <laughs> yeah. churches and drinking. But w- w- what's that line? It was Trappist beer in churches because that that resonates with me. I'm like, hey, I'll go to communion, I'll drink wine or beer, you know. But but what 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 are you saying? What's well, the it, line? It's, I think you got to give him. The, as you said, you wrote the book a year ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give him a chapter. I, I did. There was one chapter that stood out. There was you, the, you mean the a Trappist. specific line in the book? I mean, you, you did. You, you referred to the fact that you this? like something. The relationship between Churches and drinking, or churches and beer. Oh yeah, and yeah. that was what you referenced because the Trappists are the, the monks. So I, I guess giving you a chance to talk more about your book. Well, drinking <laughs> brings you closer to God, right? Well, it does, but I, I think um, I think what I was getting at there was 
Um, it's really interesting how the drinking, and it's not just in beer, but it's in a lot of things that if you look back a little bit in the history, um, a lot of the drinking traditions, a lot of the things we drink and a lot of just our, our customs are, are a lot of it's tied to some form of the clergy, you know, whether it's, you know, beer across Europe and not just in what is now Belgium, uh, you know, a lot of it was, yeah, it was it was monks brewing beer to sustain themselves. That's what they, a lot of times it was all they were consuming, especially when they were fasting, that was all they were drinking. Um, and, and, you know, things with, you know, obviously wine has a lot of um, religious connections, you know, sacramental wine or whatever, and then goes back to the Bible and everything like that. Um and then um, Adam and Eve made cider from those apples, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> See, they they you know once they were banished from the garden, and I like, I like and they that had actually work. They drink, sold drinking cider. Bring, brings us closer to God. That's pretty good, man. But yeah, but that, that's really what you it is, and especially and I'm, book, I'm you know I I I was raised Catholic. I'm kind of a lapsed Catholic, but it, it sort of that's part of probably what it intrigued me, um, especially when uh, you know sometimes. If you look at the temperance movement in the late 19th century, the thing that led up to the um, led up to prohibition, um, that was largely led by the church. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of different factions that sort of converged and pushed for prohibition, but for the most part, uh, you know, you had the women's Christian temperance movement or union, I think it was called. Um, so a lot of it was sort of clergy based and you know you go to a lot of um a lot of places in the bible belt that are dry because there sort of is but we can flip them but in your book you mentioned that the trappist is a great chapter so monks made beer monks drink beer so anyone that's religious could probably drink beer right or something oh yeah that's the, yeah. yeah again it's like but what, why'd, you, why'd you pick trappist like just stay on the book because why did I? I mean, why did you pick Trappist? Because Trappist was one of my first entry points into beer. Like I've probably been into good beer. I think going on thirteen years now, um, and my first uh, discovery was really through Belgian beers, and then I kind of gravitated towards. So, Trappist, Trappist. I know we all know, but maybe we don't. Who wants to tell us all the Trappist breweries that make beer? Trappist monasteries that make beer. Who wants to, Jeff, you want to start? Well, I mean, they're, they're you know, there's some, okay, you've got uh, St. Sixtus, which is West Vladerin. You've got West Mall. You've got Orval. Uh, Rochefort. Um, and then uh, the. Uh, Akel. La Trappe. Um, and then you've got the one that just opened a couple of years ago in, in Massachusetts, which Spencer. is which is Spencer. You've got a couple in um, you get one in, in Germany, Austria. 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 I can't. You the name one, escapes John? me at the moment. I, not off the top of my head, but and, and Italy has one as well. Yeah, Italy has one. Oh, they right. do. So who can name the? If anyone on online, they want to tweet at beer underscore sessions. You get a free beer sessions radio T shirt. You get to sit on Jimmy's yeah, lap. That's right. Instead of ten thousand dollars, you can just what, what, what's name the, a Trappist beer sit on Jimmy's lap. The that's German the, Austrian Trappist brewery and the Italian one. That's a tough question. Yeah, especially without Google in front of us. Yeah, let's <laughs> we'll take a few minutes. We'll be back on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1996, El Knife and Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, we're looking at uh, The Year of Drinking Adventurously by Jeff Cialetti with John Hall, editor of All About Beer, and Stephen Valand from Brooklyn Brew Shop, talking kind of like everything from trucks for the beverage industry to what are all the Trappist breweries in the world, which I still don't know. We're still wondering if you're out there listening. <laughs> yep, there's a German-Austrian Trappist brewery, which I think John's going to look it up, and the newest Trappist brewery is uh, from Italy, but I don't even know. Um, so, from your book, we were trying to talk about the book on this show, and you've done a great job of, it's kind of like a survey of the world. You have Pisco, you have Irish versus Scotch whiskey, you've got barrel aging. I think it's a really good survey of, of what's out there uh, for drinkers, and I know you, you allude to this thing called, it's cross drinkers, where people are actually like, not everyone's, I like craft beer, but I like whiskeys, and I like cider, and I like wine. So, I guess I'm probably more like a lot of people out there. Um, why did you use that term, cross drinker? Well, it's not my term. I, mean, I have to admit that uh, I sort of barred it. You know, who's really been uh, promoting that term is Julia Hers at the Brewers Association. She, um, that's kind of been one of her uh, talking points is that she illustrates the fact that uh, I think the number is seventy percent. Seventy percent of beer drinkers are what you would call cross drinkers they they may they may be beer they what's the word i'm looking for beer partisan i guess they're they're, they tend to be drinking beer more than anything else but they kind of leave the category every once in a while and try some other things they dabble here they'll try a whiskey they'll try a cocktail you know they'll try they'll drink wine and uh so but that that sums up your book though because you really cover a lot of things that that's really it and that that was my point because it's almost uh the book itself almost tracks my own evolution as a drinker because i used to be the person like when i first got into beer you know over a decade ago i would i was just nuts i was like i'm not going to that bar unless they have a good beer selection all i want to drink is beer a few years i started to what's the next beer steven <laughs> uh, sorry, speaking of food beers, is our Imperial Coffee and Donut Stout. Oh, nice. So it's roughly uh, 11% alcohol, uh, has roasted sorry, has a roasted um, uh, coconut flakes, coffee, and brown sugar. So. But Jeff, you've evolved. I mean, it's like, so there's yeah, a chapter you, you on start, Pisco. You, and- start to, you start to like other things. You start to try other things, and you realize... Um, I don't like beer any less than I ever had. I like it as much as I always have, but I realize there's room in my life for 
other so, kinds of So we of can things. ask the question to lizards again. Hey, is Pisco from Chile or Peru or uh, both? Oh, you're opening a can of worms yeah, there. Man. And then, oh, the other thing for your book is Irish whiskey versus, versus Scotch whiskey. Yeah. Um, what was better at one time? Well, at you know? one time, I mean, up until probably the early 20th century, Irish was considered the primo whiskey in the world. I mean, Scotch was was not as highly revered. And, I mean, a lot of the reason why we, we, we hold Scotch up, we kind of highly exalt it, if that's even a a thing is that really kind of happened in the 60s with the emergence of kind of uh, people started learning about single malts and stuff because everything everything everyone was drinking was just the blended scotches but then when people started appreciating single malts then you sort of ha- started having this really higher tier of of scotches for people to drink but you know Irish whiskey uh, was the pot still. It was. It used to be primarily pot stilled, and they continued. I learned that to from use, your book too. Yeah, when the everything I know, I learned from your book. Too. I hope I didn't get anything wrong. There. That is a but, ringing endorsement. No, but but no, but see, cover. the thing with the pot still was it wasn't until um, you know, at, probably in the twentieth century, nineteenth nineteenth twentieth century, um, Scotch distillers had sort of moved to. In a lot of ways, they they had been column distilling, but. Irish whiskeys were kind of holding out, and they were still pot stilling, which was giving their whiskey a lot of character. It got to the point by the time you got to the '60s, they had lost a ton of market share, and uh, you know people were starting. You know, they lost a lot of that Scotch because you could produce at that point. You could produce a lot more yeah. through columns. And I, I love, and really, you got to read this book, The Year of Drink, because honestly, I've never even heard this argument. I wouldn't. And Stephen, I don't know if you've distilled, but did you ever think that until? 1960 Irish whiskey was considered better than Scotch. I mean, I mean, we've been I brainwashed. It's every every generation we're brainwashed by advertising. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's just Michael Douglas and Wall Street that, uh, that kicked this <laughs> off. But I, I do wonder if it's some sort of class issue with Scotland uh, as well. I mean, I don't, I don't know. We all we, there there are so many trends uh, and ebbs and flows. It wouldn't wouldn't surprise me anything about mid century food uh, curiosities um, and trends. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to with your book uh, is that it feels like uh, your book is the cool older brother. That'll uh, kind of teach you about like music <laughs> that you don't necessarily know about, but it's also going to walk you through like all the different styles that you kind of hear about, but don't really know where to start. And if you went into a good beer shop or went into a, like a, a nice liquor store, you'd, you'd be like staring at the walls, thinking, well, "What do I do now?" And it's nice that you give a few like little examples of like, oh, if you want this, you know, well, I, want I, to start I, here. I did like that chapter a lot, the Irish versus Scotch, because I've noticed a lot of like New York and indie uh, distillers in America, they're making a, a pot pot still whiskey. Is that what they call it? Yeah, well, pot, well, the, the, well, as far as the Irish version of it, they now they, they call, call it, it pot still. They call it single pot. It used to be called pure pot still, but now pot they call still. it single so pot I've, still. So I've noticed there's a couple of American distillers who are actually just putting on a label, it's pot still whiskey. And to me, that they're they're... Assuming that it's it's a quality product. Yeah. Well, the thing is, with the we with don't the all pot- know. The, it's good to know the backstory. That's yeah. We didn't know the backstory of what pot still was. Yeah. Until I read your book. Well, I mean, yeah, and the reason why a lot of the craft distillers now are, and it's not even uh, in the Irish style or whatever, but with a lot of craft brewers are using pot stills because pot stills uh, typically you retain a lot more of the character of what you're distilling with column distilling a lot of those what they they would consider them impurities but what i'm doing air quotes nobody can see this (laughs) but uh but impurities are really things like little flavors and little notes here that give 
a whiskey some character, and when you call them distill, a lot of that goes away. So a lot of the craft distillers are sort of in the same way with uh, you know with craft brewing. You kind of want to go back to uh, sort of the handcrafted so aspect. We, we know that from Ireland, Redbreast is still one of yeah, the Redbreast pot still whiskey, and from New York, we actually have a Mackenzie's. Up in uh, Finger Lakes is doing a pot still, and there are more. Awesome. There are more Irish Irish distillers, small ones that are starting to pop up that are that are going back to the old way of doing things, especially now because because Irish whiskey in the past few years has been the fastest growing whiskey category. So now people are rediscovering Irish whiskey, most through Jameson, and Jameson's seventy percent of the category. But people are rediscovering the roots of Irish whiskey, and they're going back to some of these sort of small, what you would call a craft distillery in Ireland. They're popping up. And they're starting to go back to that that single pot still kind of thing. John, we're looking through your book, and I bet you have a question about it. I, I just – why do you think we're at the point where people need to drink adventurously? Like had we gotten so to the point where we were just sort of drinking whatever was available to us or, or what we saw advertised on TV or what was – uh, popular with like advertising money or something along those lines. Like, why is this the right time for this book? Like, what what did you see as as a drinking country uh, the need for this? Well, part of it was my own personal drinking journey, and you know, I I was lucky because I had been working for a magazine that gave me a lot of exposure to things, so I got to learn about a lot of beverages. But most people don't really get that. But I remember. It kind of starts with, and one of the things I talk about in the intro, um, when I, you know, back in the, I guess the late 90s, um, when I was trying to figure out what to drink, and it was like, that's, at that point I was in my mid to late 20s, so it was like, okay, I'm trying to uh, break away from the, the stuff that I was doing in college. I want like an adult drink now. So I would just go to a bar not knowing what to order. I would order like a well gin and tonic where it was just watered down with tonic. And uh, I didn't appreciate it, but I thought that's what you ordered. Basically because I didn't know. And a lot of people go into bars, and, and it's actually almost worse now because there are so many choices and you're just overwhelmed by those choices. You kind of crawl into your little corner and it's like default to what you might sort of know. And you still get a lot of people going into a bar saying, yeah, I'll have a vodka cranberry, which has got to be one of the most boring drinks. Well, that's also why I joke that your book's called The Year of Drinking Dangerously because, honestly, when I go into a bar that I don't know or a restaurant and and I pick from the beverage list, I also almost feel like I'm in some crazy foreign country where I'm like, oh, is that wine going to be good? Is the beer on draft going to be not only good, is the line going to be clean? And the same thing, I don't know if, if, if whatever drink they're serving me for gin and tonic is going to be a decent Liquor. So that's the funny thing. The flip side is you're right. We should read your book and learn more about what's out there. But I don't know if you feel that way, John or Stephen. But for me, I said for like 90% of the bars I go into, it's like the Wild West. When I actually have to order a drink, it's like I don't know any of the wines, I don't know any of the beers. Sure. And I'm always wondering, are they going to be okay or bad? And that's what we're trying to fight against is that it shouldn't be that case, but it is in a lot of places. No, I agree. And I think a book like this sort of gives you confidence to know what to order and to know uh, a few various things that are out there. And I, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we need this book right now. And sometimes it's just learning about your palate. So you may not need to know exactly what brand to order or what region of wine you're, you want to order from, but at least you start knowing what you like. So if you start saying, like, I want a minerally red with, you know, that's dry, not too much, like, not too 
much berry and stone fruit, but like something that'll go well with and then name what you're planning to eat. And if it's a place that you trust, you're going to get something great, even if you have really no idea what the words are on the page. Well, not, same as me when you said you had a coffee and donut stout, I was a little worried about it, but it's funny. I, it tastes almost like an Augie Carton beer where it's like, it's donut, donut gives it sweetness. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, so it's, so it's brown, yeah, brown sugar, some uh, caramel malts, and um, some like roasted coconut flakes. But Augie does a lot of beers like that, doesn't he? he Augie does do a lot of beers like that. I, I assume you're pointing to me because I'm like the defective Jersey <laughs> guy here. Uh, yeah, no, Augie does a, a lot of great stuff. He's a great benefit to the Great Garden State. But yeah, he's he's got a he's got a chef's mind, a culinary mind. Going back to that earlier point that we were talking about, beer and food kind of coming together. You know, Augie is definitely one of those those guys who can dissect a beer and find beer ingredients to recreate food dishes it's, well, it's been cool. fun we, we covered a lot of bases and we can talk about the next truck you should buy when you're a beer distributor <laughs> but jeff last one because recognizing you as as a great writer uh and and really like what you wrote in this book pick one last chapter from the book and give us a few words about it because uh, you covered everything like i said pisco whiskeys malort malort <laughs> malort it's oh man malort. it's gotta be so. malort it What's Malort? Malort I actually, when I saw the title of that chapter, it's the chapter I skipped. So you better tell oh, me about it. Oh, do not skip oh, Malort. Skip no? Malort that Jimmy. is like one of the best stories because uh, Malort is this really, really vile. intense. Well, vile is another way of putting it, but it's this really intense. Uh, it's a liqueur that is made from wormwood, which is, it doesn't taste like absinthe, though, but it's made from wormwood. It's sort of based on a Scandinavian spirit, and it's got this intense sort of grapefruity bitterness to it that is just really crazy, and it's it's very localized to Chicago. It is a Chicago... Oh, it's from Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, and, so and it's... actual wild uh, wormwood growing on the shores of Lake Michigan that some bartenders uh, yeah. actually pick and make, like, house malort. And if you love... Bile, you might love. Them. Yeah, if you like rotting, <laughs> if you like rotting flesh and earwax, uh, this is really this is this is the spirit for you. But most most like cocktail bars like worth their salt in Vermont. Uh, sorry, in Chicago, do have like a malort on tap. Oh yeah, like, there's there's a, there's one. It's called the uh, Scofflaw. They actually have mm-hmm. a tap handle shaped like a bottle of malort, and they just pour it right from. And it's it's basically a rite of passage. It's like you got to do your uh, shot of malort when you're I got in a shot of malort. It's kind of fun too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I tell you, this is the book to read. It is. It is. Yeah, malort is. Uh, Jeff actually introduced to me to malort uh, about a year and a half ago when we were in Chicago, and he documented it. Uh, there's a thing that that involuntarily happens that's called the malort face because this this. This, I, it, I, I hesitate even calling it like a beverage because beverage, <laughs> like, you know, it's like something that is refreshing and something that you enjoy. Uh, but you, everybody who tastes it for the first time, their face really like twists up and just turns uh, because it's 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 so. He kind of looked like uh, Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot. That was his <laughs> face. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, but everybody should do it at least once, and I'm always amazed that people do it again and again and, and again. It's a great reminder of the like regionality of craft beverages. That like even even something as weird uh, tasting as Malort has like a home. Yeah, no, it's beverages yeah. like that that really make me appreciate high fructose. Hope some of our Chicago <laughs> listeners will uh, 
tweet us at Beer Underscore Sessions. Maggie's live now. What is Malort? Let's hear about it from Chicago. Hey, um, this has been a great show. I'm going to give a big shout out to some upcoming events. Uh, December 5th and 6th. To me, it's New York City's Belgian weekend where at Muggsy House in Williamsburg, both days, December 5th and 6th. Ed, Ed Barastecki's doing a crazy day of all Belgian tap takeovers. And at Jimmy's number 43, we do a thing called Battle of the Belgians, and we have a number of uh, Belgian importers paired against American Belgian-style beers. But for me, this time of year, talking about Jeff's book, I love that he picked for beer. He picked sour beers and goozes and, 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 and Trappist. It, it ties into this time of year for me, start getting back into Belgians. And, and, and talking about American craft beer and all the changes in the industry and people getting bought out, we're not going to go there, but I will say that um, it's okay to go to go to the homeland and check out some Belgian beers this time of year. So in closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Jeff, John, and Stephen for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to our producers, Maggie and Justin, and most of all, engineer Jack Inslee, who's been carrying the torch for Heritage Radio Network for so many years. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Yeah. Woo! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.